welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for Apex Race Manager, the mobile management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato, and on this week's edition, the Japanese Grand Prix, it's Hamilton's title to lose after Vettel retires at Suzuka, and Felipe Massa ruins everyone's race, but especially his own. That's all to come in this edition of the Strategy Report. Join us on the Monday after the Grand Prix. It's National Sports Day in Japan. It's a day off. Imagine getting a day off for sport. What a fitting day as well that we should look back on the Japanese Grand Prix, a very important Grand Prix in the steam of the championship because it's pretty much over now. And to talk me through it is Abhishek Takle, freelance motorsport writer. How are you? I'm good, Michael. Great to be back on the show again. <laughs> You're so pleased, aren't you? I am. It's a great show. I oh, love it. Thank you. Love thank being you on much. here. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, the Japanese Grand Prix, let's start at the most important talking point before we get into the strategy, the championship. Pretty much it's over now, if not uh, mathematically speaking, which it will be within the next two rounds almost certainly, then realistically, because for the second, well, it was a fourth time in two races, Ferrari suffered a, a relatively bad power unit problem that eliminated Sebastian Vettel from the race. That's right. You mentioned National Sports Day, uh, and I'm sure Sebastian Vettel must be thumbing through the rule books to find some sort of <laughs> loophole that can allow the race to be run again mm-hmm. on the occasion of National Sports Day. Not because, right I mean, what a disaster. I mean, who would have thought, right? You know, I, I, they say lightning doesn't strike twice, but if you're Ferrari, it strikes four times. Once <laughs> in Singapore, twice in Malaysia, mm. and now again in Japan. It wasn't even a thunderstorm in Japan, unfortunately. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a 66-point turnaround since the start of the mid-season break. Uh, and how many races has that been? Five races. It's pretty dramatic. It's, it's a fairly dramatic uh, occurrence for Ferrari. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, it's extremely costly because there's no way back for Sebastian Vettel here. He needs to, to win the championship from here. Lewis Hamilton can win the next Grand Prix with Vettel sixth. Or, almost certainly, if that doesn't happen, which, you know, is probably not that likely. In Mexico, the equation will be much more straightforward and the championship will almost certainly be over from there. And let's just briefly dissect why we think this has happened. We'll have another four races to do this over the course of the program. We may as well get a start on it now. Yeah. A combination of mechanical failure, as we've said, but also really, I'm going to say the genesis of these problems were not necessarily with a poor Italian Grand Prix, but with real driver error at the Singapore Grand Prix. Yeah, that's where it all started, didn't it? The downward spiral that Ferrari mm-hmm. have sort of found themselves was locked into. I mean, um, Singapore and Malaysia should really have been Ferrari races and they should have capitalized, but mm-hmm. you know they missed, they missed out and now they're paying the price for it. Mm, absolutely, and it's going to be interesting to see the wash-up from this. We know Ferrari has a bit of a, a bloodletting culture, let's say, how that's going to pan out at the end of the season when, I mean, strictly speaking, they come very close because the car is still very competitive, ironically enough, but if Mercedes is going to win the championship in Austin, which they, again, almost certainly will, and Hamilton by the end of the month, this season technically hasn't really been as competitive as the last couple because the championship's been decided as early as it was in 2015. Yeah, but that's because, I mean, that's only because of all the problems Ferrari Mm -hmm. are having. I mean, like you said, the car is extremely competitive, uh, more competitive than many people thought it would be at this stage of the season. Mm -hmm. Um, If you leave out, okay, Malaysia, Singapore, the car was, let's take those races as anomalies. And the car Mm -hmm. was, uh, the Ferrari was the car to beat, Mercedes was struggling. Uh, but even in Japan, I mean, while the gap opened up again in qualifying, it would have been interesting to see mm-hmm. how Vettel would have done in the race because the temperatures went back up. As you pointed out, I think on Sunday, they were in Malaysia territory, the track mm-hmm. temperatures, or even hotter than Malaysia. And so 
would have been interesting to see if the race came back to Vettel. Mm-hmm. And indeed, we got a little bit of a glimpse of that because to look towards the strategy of the Grand Prix, Kimi Räikkönen and Valtteri Bottas are running the contra strategy, which Vettel ran in Malaysia, which was to start on the harder tyre. They qualified in Q2 with that tyre and made it through, and then to end the race on the softest, super soft tyre. Uh, and Kimi Räikkönen, I think, is a, is a good example of this. Valtteri Bottas, only slightly less so because he didn't start quite so far back. Uh, Räikkönen started 10th, but fell all the way down to 14th, I think it was, at the end of the first lap. He was muscled out by, I think, Hulkenberg. Hulkenberg, at, at, that's at the spoon, that's yeah. right. Oh, the spoon, yeah. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Uh, and then brought his way all the way back up into, of course, the top six grid positions where the top three teams naturally belong with the pace. A lot of this, as was the case with Vettel, had to do with naturally those top three teams being much faster than everybody else. There was a 33-second gap between uh, Raikkonen in fifth and everyone else in the <laughs> midfield. But it did show that that Ferrari on the right tyres was very quick. He got held up on the way, but it was it was a... It was a fast race for Raikkonen. Yeah, it was. I mean, Raikkonen was good, as was Bottas. Like, the contrast strategy really worked for the both of them. I mean, Bottas, I think, for for instance, could have actually snatched the podium, as he said. But mm-hmm. you know, he lost time in the Mercedes switcheroo mm-hmm. that they did uh, midway through the race, I think, as the stops were shaking out. Um, yeah, he could even have been third, Bottas. I, I think Bottas was a really remarkable uh, mm-hmm. performer from, from Raikkonen and Bottas because of, the, because of the way he progressed through the field. Raikkonen was good. Uh, the Ferrari was strong, but what could it have done in Vettel's hands? That's always the question, isn't yeah. it, with Ferrari? You're right, he's a good race, he had a good race, he won a championship once, I think it was, but what could Vettel have done? Sadly, sadly that's the case, but but we know Raikkonen's, Raikkonen's a, a very capable capable peddler, I mean, mm. we know the data doesn't lie, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean... Maybe that was a Ferrari, maybe he extracted the Ferrari's potential, but we'll never know mm-hmm. because we didn't have Vettel for a reference. Yes, either way, Mercedes was back on form after the last couple of races where they were really on the ropes, and this will really also count against the championship because moments where Ferrari should have had essentially an open goal completely screwed it up, tripped over themselves. Worth noting as a complete aside, a detour that Sebastian Vettel in the last three races has scored as many points as Stoffel van Dorn did for <laughs> McLaren Honda, which is... That's an embarrassing statistic. Yes, it really does underline it. Now, Bottas, as you said, did have a fantastic race, which was much needed for him because as much as Mercedes has been struggling in recent times, Valtteri Bottas has. Hasn't been able to execute races anywhere near as well as Lewis Hamilton, who's hit his stride. So running the contra strategy in some respects, it may be a bit of a gamble for Bottas because his pace hasn't been there, but this showed maybe he's, he's back on top of his demons. Yeah, I think he needed this race uh, because as he admitted himself, you know, this is the, he was probably going through the hardest period of his career. Um, and so in that sense, he needed this race to turn the corner, if you will. And, uh, well, we'll only know in, uh, in, in, in the US if he has. Mm-hmm, indeed, where we maybe get a, a more straightforward Grand Prix for him to execute. Now, Bottas and Raikkonen's pace, and I'll talk again about Raikkonen in a moment for reasons why maybe he couldn't catch up quite so far other than that first lap uh, drama to Bottas. Uh, obviously, he did a one-stop race, as did pretty much everyone uh, of note, let's say. Anyone who executed a relatively quick race was on the one-stop strategy, despite the fact that because we had very limited running on Friday due to a lot of rain, uh, particularly in FP2, uh, no one really was sure how degradation was going to go. In fact, Pirelli suggested, particularly with the warm temperatures, as you said, on Sunday, this would be a two-stop Grand Prix. Now, it's relatively telling that it wasn't a two-stop Grand Prix subsequently, but it's interesting to think, had it been a two-stop for almost everyone except for Bottas and Raikkonen, how much further they could have gotten, because 
that kind of contra strategy kind of relies on everyone else doing something dramatically different to you, but they didn't, which again underlines how quick those cars were. But I suppose this comes down to the tyres just still being too hard, something to address for next year. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, this is this would have been only the second two-stop race in Spain. I mean, remember those days of tyre degradation when drivers would, you know, complain after three or four <laughs> laps? Exactly. I mean, this is the same Pirelli. But no, I mean, yes, the contra strategies do rely on... Uh, the others doing something different but you have to remember both well say Bottas Hamilton uh, Mercedes would have known what Bottas strategy was mm-hmm. there was no way they would have obviously done a contra strategy for Hamilton or mm-hmm. stopped him twice because you know they would probably have figured out that uh, that would have you know so the top teams all know what everybody is doing mm-hmm. and they wouldn't want to handicap one of their own or switch them to the so it's, it's all sort of contradictory in a way yes among the teams yeah it's interesting because the way a contra strategy works as well, particularly when you're starting on the harder tyre, which is typically what the contra strategy is, it, is that... Let me interrupt you there. Is contra please? the contra the word of the weekend? Yeah, We've had as, as much as it is capricious for Toto Wolff to describe his car, no longer capricious, but, you know, in a race where there was only one stop for most cars, not a lot of strategy, I've got to take what I can get, Abhishek. <laughs> I've got to do what I can. Uh, is that you start on the harder tyre, you run longer than everybody else, or... The, the cars who start on the conventional strategy, let's say. And the idea is by the time it's time for you to make your pit stop, you're ahead of them all. And may, hopefully when you stop, you're, you come out of the pit lane ahead of cars that you didn't have to pass on track because they stopped out of your way. This was mostly true for Kimi Raikkonen and yeah. Valtteri Bottas, yeah. of course, who had a lot of cars stop in front of him at various points because some of the midfield cars were still a little bit unsure as to whether they're running two or three stops. Mm. And I want to compare here, I think, what's the most interesting strategy talking point of this Grand Prix, which is Felipe Massa and Nico Hülkenberg, two drivers who are running one-stop races. Hülkenberg, uh, the contra strategy as well himself, starting on the soft, Felipe Massa not. Massa was sucked into sort of making a two-stop. He stopped quite early, lap 17, I think it was, and then didn't stop again when he realized no one else was doing it. He didn't want to make a second stop. But Hülkenberg, knowing that Raikkonen was so much faster, knew he was never going to be in that race, twice led him through without any trouble. First before Raikkonen stopped, and then after Raikkonen stopped. Uh, it meant his race was at the maximum speed, so was Raikkonen's. There was no drama there. Felipe Massa, though, on the other hand, did completely the opposite. He held up Raikkonen. I shouldn't say held up. He raced with Raikkonen. They were in the same race, even if their results were never going to be near each other. Not only did this slow down Raikkonen, as we said, maybe he could have been a little bit further up the grid by the end of the race, but it actually ruined Massa's race because rather than just letting him pass and then doing his maximum lap time on what was the softest tyre and the best operating tyre in the Grand Prix, uh, he slowed down. He was losing bundles of time, half a second, second a lap for a good couple of laps. And what that meant was that later in the race, he was very vulnerable to the Haas cars behind him. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, though. I mean, because you, you talk about racing drivers going wheel to wheel and the racing drivers are meant to race and mm-hmm. you never want to let anybody through. But overall, when you look at the big picture, it actually, in Massa's case, it hurt him, mm-hmm. you know, holding Raikkonen up. Yes, it held Raikkonen up, but yeah, because... It no, it's it's not just that you're losing bundles of time by you know not taking ideal lines into corners and stuff mm. because you're defending, but you also uh, you're also moving around so much. Your tires are also getting shot. It's not just the car behind who's losing its tires, mm-hmm. but it's also you as the person who's defending who's losing his tires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it all just sort of spirals out of control. It's it's just one sort of downward spiral after that. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to consider a Grand Prix not merely as a, just a sprint race where everyone's racing each other all the time. Certainly that's not the case in seasons like this where you have cars that are much faster than others. But as Hülkenberg demonstrated for Renault, you have to sort of consider your race by its overall race time. How can you get to the flag fastest? 
fighting Raikkonen, who was going to get past one way or another, whether because Massa stopped or simply because his car was that much faster, it was never going to be an option, which meant that Massa's finishing time, his total finishing time, which was you know an hour and a half or whatever it was, hour 34 minutes, uh, was longer than it should have been. And yeah. that's ultimately what you have to look at with strategy, the fastest way to get to the chequered flag. And it's a bit disappointing that Williams let this one down, considering they're in such a tight midfield fight. Yeah. And they did lose points to Haas at the end of the day, they mostly did. because and of this. That's, that's, a, that's a fairly big error. Yeah, they did. And, they, and, and, and don't forget, they almost lost that single point to Alonso as well. They almost mm-hmm. lost a points paying place. Because uh, Massa basically decided, I'm sure he'd love to race the Mercedes and the Ferraris, but he's got to be realistic he, mm-hmm. and and understand that he cannot race them on pure pace. Mm-hmm. He and was never going to race them. He he was he was never in that race. <laughs> it's just not. It's been a while since you've driven for Ferrari, Felipe. You need to remember. <laughs> it's been a while since Williams has been competitive. I guess maybe he thought it was 2014. Who's yeah. to say? He's driving for his seat in 2018. After all, maybe he wanted to make a point. Uh, he could have lost that 10. He's giving himself pleasure this year in Formula One, though. <laughs> That's a direct quote, by the way. Yes, uh, just yes to make, exactly. Yes, yeah. there's a direct quote before anyone casts any aspersions on, on the credibility of this program. We heard him say it, in fact. Uh, he could have lost that place to Alonso, but in fact, he should almost have finished 11th because to compare again with Nico Hulkenberg, he was committed to racing his own Grand Prix, starting on that soft tyre and, and switching quite late to the super soft, which meant he had a very fast burst, or I should say, should have had a very fast burst at the very end of the Grand Prix. He executed it perfectly, in fact. There were times where he was complaining about the tyres, his team encouraged him to stay out. He had very good pace. He would have emerged behind, or he did emerge rather, right behind Massa leading both Haas cars with a, not only the faster tyre, but a Renault that's probably the fastest midfield car, I think it's fair to say, maybe only behind Force India on an occasion? I, I think the Renault's actually quicker than the Force India on mm-hmm. several occasions. I mean, I would say the point in the season we are at, um, the Renault is probably now the fourth fastest car on average, mm-hmm. uh, but it's just that Force India have basically put together a better, more consistent overall season mm-hmm. from start to finish. Um, yeah, I mean, Hulkenberg, what a shame. It would have been so interesting to see how his strategy played out. He was brilliant, wasn't he? He was, yes. he was quick. Now, we say should have executed that strategy. Unfortunately, like you say, we couldn't see what was to happen because only one lap after he stopped, he had to pull into the pits again with a DRS failure, let's say. The flap had rotated 360 degrees. It couldn't be closed. Yeah. It couldn't be reopened either, obviously. He had to pull back into the pits. That was essentially the end of his race, but they tried to fix it. And we saw on the television that... It had broken off, essentially, the flap. And there's an interesting question that, as far as I know, at the time of recording anyway, is unanswered as to whether it was broken before or whether a mechanic (laughs) trying to fix it by essentially punching it broke it there and then. Either way, the race was over, so we shouldn't be too hard on him. But it's a nonetheless interesting question. Yes, it is, because, you know, you you could see them hammering away on the Mm -hmm. rear wing to close the DRS flap. But, I mean, I'm sure they know what they're doing. Yeah. But, you know, you've got to think, if whatever 100 kilograms of downforce can't push that flap into place. <laughs> yeah. There's no way hammering it is going to hold it in place either. Mm, we don't know how strong that punch was. It could have been a good one. I, I don't want to find out. <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's nice to see Renault at this point competing so effectively because last year we know it was difficult for them coming back to Formula 1. The car was also off the pace. We know this was Jolyon Palmer's last weekend. and I mean, you can say a lot of things about Jolly and Palmer at this point, but I think the most important thing to say, it's not even about Jolly and Palmer, I've realised. It sounded like I was going to say something nice about him. No, it's that they've gone for Carlos Sainz, who is a better driver, yeah. as much as it sounds cruel to say. This is all building up to Renault's credibility. We also know they've uh, stolen Marcin Budkowski from the FIA. I say stolen, has signed, are paying yeah. for his services. 
uh, in what's a pretty aggressive move. This is Renault building up to possibly next year be racing on the podium, maybe even for wins perhaps a dark horse. And a strategy like this showing they can execute it with a long stint on the tyres with Nico Hülkenberg obviously illustrating his credible driving talents. This is a, a very good sign for Renault, even if they had a bit of a weird technical failure. Yeah, sure. I mean, Renault is is on an upward swing right now. They, you know, there's this momentum building up behind them. Mm-hmm. When they bought uh, Lotus, which used to be Renault, which used to be Benetton Renault, which used to be mm-hmm. Benetton Ford, which used to be <laughs> Benetton something, and before that, Tolman. <laughs> but, I mean, well, yeah, so when they bought the team, or, or re-bought the team from Lotus, um, everyone, and, and, and they laid out the targets. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to be challenging for the championship or the top three or whatever by whatever year. I don't quite remember what it was, but it was fairly soonish. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, Everyone, everyone basically was skeptical that they could do it mm-hmm. because Renault have always have never been um, sort of the the sort of manufacturer to spend uh, you know tons and tons of money. They've mm-hmm. always been um, you know prudent. They've always been uh, wise with how they spend their money, and everyone just dismissed them or, or was skeptical of their um, mm-hmm. ambitions. But clearly, um, this year you've seen how far they have developed, how far they've come along, and it's remarkable. They are building up, and uh, and and yeah, I think. They, they, the, the pieces are now falling into place. Hulkenberg this year mm-hmm. signs next year, but but let's but but from the next race onwards, and Butkowski, I think, I think yes. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see Renault at the at the front ish mm-hmm. next year, and uh, you know, fighting for the title very soon. As a final wrap up on that midfield battle, the most interesting strategic part, I think, of that Grand Prix. Did we? We didn't really talk about Palmer. Did we just give him a special mention? I think that's okay. Maybe, maybe we can do a, a little musical tribute at the end or something. I don't know. But I, I, think I like Palmer. He's well, he's gone now, so he may come back. Who's to say? Uh, he certainly has some money to come back. Anyway, uh, is that? Strategy can get you so far, as we saw with, well, I mean, Hockenberg to a lesser extent. Massa pitted at the wrong time because he thought he was going for a two-stop race. That had the secondary effect of meaning he was on fairly used tyres by the end of the Grand Prix. Strategy can go so far, yeah. but at the end of the day, an on-track pass is sometimes necessary. You'd think, hopefully, mostly necessary because it means the races look more exciting. Yeah, I mean, but it was Magnussen's pass on, on Massa that ultimately ended that midfield fight. And a pretty impressive one. It was. I mean... Felipe was on on such old tires that basically, you know, Fernando was faster than him yeah, at the end. To, to use a phrase, yeah. to quote a phrase. Yeah, I mean, he was. Uh, he 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 just about he just about clung on to uh, you know to that to that single point mm-hmm. uh, by the skin of his skin of his teeth, I think, because yeah, yeah his tires were pretty much shot. Mm-hmm. And by maybe misbehaving under blue flag situations. Him and Alonso, I should say. Well, Alonso got yes. the reprimand, didn't he? Yes, yeah. he did, yeah. So, nonetheless, an interesting. But Fernando was still there. faster than him. That's yes, he was. at the end he was. Which I should also, as a side note, not strategically, but say that a good. Well, I say good sign for McLaren Honda. They're over at the end of the year. A good sign for Honda because that car. Okay, it's not the quickest car, it's not really at the top of the midfield, but when it's in the right operating window, is quite competitive. Don't forget, Williams is operating the class of the field engine, and whilst this isn't like a straight-out engine circuit, it, it says a lot about how Honda and McLaren are operating, which does give some hope for Toro Rosso next season. It's not a straight-out engine circuit, but it is a pretty power-dependent track, mm-hmm. as the Red Bulls were pointing out on, on Saturday after qualifying. So, uh, I mean, yes, of course, the the... the, the the reason Alonso was, was was so close to Massa was also the the difference in in their tires mm-hmm. and and how they were holding up, but yeah, it, it bodes well for Honda and Toro Rosso next year. I mean, I want to see Honda do well next year. Yeah. I really do. Mm-hmm. I think you know whatever their problems are, whatever the problems have been, I can understand why McLaren ran out of patience. You know, it's understandable, 
but I really want to see Honda and both McLaren as well. Mm-hmm. McLaren do well, both of them. I want to see both of them do well. And maybe a Honda-powered car can once again score a point at its home Grand Prix. I want to talk about Pierre Gasly in the second Toro Rosso, only Toro Rosso, after Carlos Sainz crashed out on the first lap. An interesting second race for him. He could have scored points, but again we saw after the Malaysian Grand Prix where a similar sort of thing happened, he's just not used to the car managing the tyres and managing the car overall. Uh, He stopped in pretty much the correct window for a one-stop. He's having a fine race, could have been competing massive for a point, Uh, in some respects should have scored that point or perhaps have competed with Hülkenberg in the ultimate hypothetical situation for that point. Uh, but had an enormous lock-up after not managing his second set of tyres so well and had to uh, make a second stop. So essentially was forced onto an unscheduled two-stop Grand Prix and he finished down in 13th. He had good pace, but it does show how difficult these cars are, if not necessarily to say just to drive, but to drive a Grand Prix in them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's not forget this this was only his second race. And unlike most rookies who make their debuts at the Australian Grand Prix, Mm -hmm. they've got, you know... Uh, winter testing behind them. They've got. They've had time to prepare, study mm-hmm. the data, understand how the car works its tires. This is this is just Gasly's second race, and um, let's also not forget uh, he was competing in Super Formula until very mm-hmm. recently, and may well continue to until the end of the season. Yeah, no one knows. <laughs> but uh, and, and Super Formula is so different from Formula One in the sense there is not so much management going on there. Mm-hmm. It's it's all about you know just going flat out. Mm-hmm. And he's already raced the Super Formula One, uh, Super Formula cars mm-hmm. at Suzuka. Pardon me. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just a completely different way of driving, and he's just ha- he's just having to recalibrate now. But he'll mm-hmm. get there. I mean, he's a he's a talented young boy. Mm. He's a quick driver. Yeah. There's no doubt about yeah. that. I look forward to seeing a, a full season from him later down the track. Let's talk about some different unusual strategies. There was one particularly unusual strategy. Unusual for Formula 1, but it's something that Sauber seems to try with relative frequency, certainly when there's an early safety car, as there was to clean up uh, Carlos Sainz's car. They stopped off their soft tyres behind the safety car, then made another stop the next lap on lap 3 to remove the super soft tyre and go to the soft tyre. That satisfies the rule that says you have to use two different types of tyres in in simple terms, and attempted to make it to the end of the Grand Prix on that one set of new softs. Maybe that could have gained in positions because it's essentially a no-stop race in that situation because you lose no time behind the safety car for stopping. However, it could not be done. This was meant to be a marginal two-stop, a one-stop race at best. It was meant to be a two-stop. Doing a zero-stop was probably always ambitious, but I guess if you're Sauber, you've got to try something, right? Yeah. Where did they finish? At last. <laughs> <laughs> finished dead last. Yeah, so P15 work. and... Two laps down. Yeah, no, and I one lap down on Van Dorn. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we've got to put the statistics out there. Yeah, but I mean, um, yeah, you're right. I guess it, it didn't work for them, but when you're Sauber running a year old Ferrari power, mm-hmm. really, what have you got to lose? Yeah, I guess that's the thing. You just got to roll the dice. Yeah, yeah. Either way, they were probably looking at something there. So, again, an unscheduled pit stop for him, I guess a first stop, if you like to call it, but realistically a third stop. Uh, ruined his race if it wasn't already destined to, to end yeah. up last. Uh, I also want to talk about very briefly the idea that two-stop races versus one-stop races. Mm. On a circuit like this, the critical factor, I suppose, that decided a one-stop race, not simply just degradation, was the fact that it's so hard to pass at Suzuka. And that means if you're going to gamble on a two-stop race, let's say uh, Max Verstappen, for example, wanted to gamble his victory on a two-stop race, it relies on you passing a lot of cars. And on a circuit like this, it's very difficult, as some of the cars, uh, Lance Stroll for one example, we, we know his Williams is relatively quick, uh, couldn't manage because passing is just so difficult. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a two-stop race, if there was nobody else racing on the track, would probably be quicker because mm-hmm. it's a more, more, it's more of a sprint strategy. You're, you're driving uh, to the limit of the car more often than mm-hmm. when you're doing a one-stop. But 
if you're not able, if you're not going to be able to use that extra speed mm-hmm. and and give it that extra that you need to because you're bottled behind another yeah, car. Yeah, exactly. Then, then it's basically there's no point. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw, for example, Daniel Ricciardo stuck behind Esteban Ocon at the beginning of the race after a poor start. And while the Red Bull racing car is faster than the, the Force India, though the Force India has a, a faster engine, uh, he couldn't get past. Not because uh, the car wasn't fast enough, but because it is just so difficult to pass here. That's right. I think I think he only got past when uh, Ocon was bottled up behind Vettel, who was obviously struggling with the lack mm-hmm. of power. And then I think both of them pulled out from behind Vettel and. Uh, Ricardo I think it was later than that because Ricardo was stuck until lap 11, I think, behind Ocon. Oh right, okay. Then he yeah. may have attempered a pass at that yeah, point, yeah. I think, because I remember Down three the of them. Yeah, and all, Bottas yeah. also got in on the action. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it could have been very ugly. Ooh. In fact, that, that yeah. pass really. But yeah, I mean, that just shows uh, how sensitive these cars are to following in in, in another's wake, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there's no point to, like you say, it's about it's about uh, going from lights to flag in the fastest mm-hmm. possible time. Yeah, in the overall race. Um, which means you have to factor in you, you can't not factor in other cars and traffic etc etc you have to factor in all of the variables mm-hmm. as much as you can and then simulate the fastest race and in this case it was the one stop which leads us very nicely to I think the final point uh, we talk about getting the fastest uh, finishing time team orders uh, read their heads in a minor way but nonetheless important way in this Grand Prix I want to use two examples in particular Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas who are on very different strategies as we said uh, and also the Force India drivers of Esteban Ocon and Sergio Perez uh, once Ocon had, had been overtaken by Ricardo and eventually outstopped by Raikkonen the two faster cars he found Sergio Perez behind him they were competing on roughly the same pace Perez thought he was faster was asked if he could overtake and we know there's a lot of history between these two drivers Azerbaijan for example Canada another example even briefly in Silverstone, I think Spa, there was a bit of don't forget, they collided of course, like twice. Spa, yeah. Yes, where they collided. Forzinia said, uh, no, 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 you're not going to pass, uh, which was probably for them the best way forward because if, on a track that's so hard to overtake, as we were saying, the likelihood of these guys maybe not finishing the race and scoring the very healthy points they did was heightened. Yeah, and they were in a, they were in a really strong position. So there was no mm. point uh, fighting amongst each other, especially when they've shown in the past that the team can't rely on them to do it uh, keeping their noses clean. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all just part of the revised rules of engagement. Yes, yes. that term again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that were brought in after the spa incidents. I mean, it, Otmar said very clearly, I spoke to him after the race. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said very clearly uh, that, no, now it's going to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless unless there's nothing to be gained, if there's nothing mm-hmm. to be gained, we'll hold position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we have uh, our second driver who's faster than the a guy ahead mm-hmm. and can also pass the car ahead of that and gain us some points mm-hmm. uh, then sure then we'll, we'll, we'll sort of execute a strategic uh, a strategic move but mm-hmm. um, if there's nothing to be gained we're running our own race mm-hmm. and we're not going to be letting them race anymore absolutely and with Raikkonen 30 odd seconds up the road there was nothing to yeah. be gained by letting Perez absolutely. and Ocon race yeah. compare that to Hamilton and Bottas who were on different strategies it must be said so there was a reason that Bottas was uh, asked to let Hamilton pass but again shows how team teams can work together in that sense they were both on different strategies Bottas shouldn't hold up Hamilton he did for about a lap I think as they found a place to to let him pass almost allowed Verstappen to try and pass Hamilton at that point but an efficient uh, let by maneuver let's say the chicane uh, ended that chance but shows how teams can use their drivers together to get the maximum result yeah absolutely I think uh it's just that, sadly, Bottas seemed to say after the race that it cost him about four seconds or something, mm-hmm. or a few seconds, and that probably cost him the podium. Possibly. In hindsight, mm-hmm. when, you, when, you, when you look at it. 
but again, uh, you know, you've got Hamilton who's in the lead. It's a race. Forget the championship. The point mm-hmm. is the race lead is at stake. And we know for Mercedes, it's about winning every race. Mm-hmm. The championship will come at the end of it. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, when you've, when, you're, when you've got the race lead at stake, you have to sacrifice um, the podium for the second car. Then that's a, that's a sacrifice worth making, I think. Yes, because yeah. I mean, in the end, maybe Bottas lost a podium. But any longer in front of Hamilton, Hamilton could have lost the win. Which yeah. obviously worth more points. Yeah. More prestigious. That's the way the race pound out. Uh, Not the most thrilling Japanese Grand Prix, but an interesting one and an important one for the championship. Not thrilling, but dramatic, I would say. Dramatic, I think. It's been a pleasure, of course, to look back on you... uh, it's been a pleasure, of course, to look I back. I hope you at don't it. look back on me. No, I look back on you. I'm still You're here. over. The podcast is over now. Abhishek Takla. Arigato gozaimasu. Arigato gozaimasu, Michael. That was the strategy report from the 2017 Japanese Grand Prix. But if you want to read more about the strategy from this week's race, go to f1strategyreport.com for the pit stop stats, tyre data and all the write-up from the action from Suzuka. Don't forget to subscribe to and rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you normally download your podcasts. The strategy report is powered by the 2017 edition of Apex Race Manager, which you can download for free for iOS and Android devices. My name's Michael Laminato. You can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in two weeks' time for a look back at the United States Grand Prix.